Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero, your audio home for the local energy revolution. You're listening to your hosts, Becky and Matt. With COP27 in Egypt fast approaching, we're joined for this episode by someone who is central to global, UK and indeed the Scottish climate discussion, internationally renowned climate scientist, Professor Jim Ski. Jim is co-chair of Working Group 3 for Mitigation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC for short. He's also chair of Scotland's Just Transition Commission, and he's with us shortly to talk about a just transition and climate justice. Oh, Matt, it's great to be back after um, after being down with the dreaded COVID lurgy for so long. And honestly, I couldn't have come back for a more exciting episode. I mean, how yep. phenomenal is this that we get to talk to Professor Jim Ski weeks away from COP27? Well, firstly, I'm glad you're back. I can see that you're still recovering, but I know you want to be part of this so much <laughs> that you have dialed in today. So kudos. I, I first met Jim... Uh, about 10 years ago when Jim was actually my boss for a number of years and a a very good boss at that. And we weren't really doing stuff around just transitions, particularly, you know, in this space. But since Jim has gone on to do bigger and better things, has been working with the IPCC, providing and kind of synthesising a lot of that scientific information about how we can tackle climate change, mitigate climate change. But more recently, certainly over the last few years, he's been involved with the Just Transition Commission with uh, with Scottish Government, or at least commissioned by Scottish Government. And we'll hear a lot more about this, but in effect, he's trying to shape or inform how Scottish Government shape and deliver a just transition, putting theory into practice. And I know, Becky, You've done a fair bit of theorising uh, around this space. I mean, I know you're a very practical person, yeah. but but this is something quite close to your heart too. Yeah, absolutely, it is, and and in fact, actually, Matt, one of the things that I'm really like that I'm really pleased about and I'm really excited about when we talk to Jim is that he brings those two different dimensions together because I think sometimes you know if for folk that are really focusing on the kind of climate science side of things. The, the human dimension can perhaps mm-hmm. fall by the wayside a bit. And similarly, for folk that are very focused on just transitions, like obviously 
climate and and the the kind of shift to net zero is is fundamental to that but i think sometimes you can get so focused on kind of the impact on people and the the kind of human dimension of it that that could so bringing these two pieces together i think is absolutely critical because we're, we're just never going to get to net zero unless we can do that so yeah. i mean we're very very lucky today to have somebody who can talk to both sides of those pieces and and really have that kind of backing in in what we need to do fundamentally to meet net zero, yep. but also how are we going to do that in a way that's fair and equitable and that brings everyone in society along? Uh, absolutely. When anybody asks me, well, what is a just transition? And I say, well, you know, there's lots of questions. We'll hear more about them from, from Jim, but there's two key questions when it comes to a net zero transition. Who pays and who benefits? Uh, there's, there's more to it than that, but if we can boil it down to those two, and if can Jim can provide a bit of insight onto those, then I think we'll all leave here a, a bit bit wiser. Well, and, and I would actually just add to that. I mean, I, I think that who pays and who benefits is, is so important. And again, it's not just about you know society and or households. I know last episode we were talking about fuel poverty issues, but in just transition, we need to think about who pays, who benefits from an industry perspective, from a work perspective. Yeah. But I actually think there's another really important dimension in all of that, and it's who gets a say. Oh yeah. Who yeah. gets to be involved in the decision making? You and, know? and how? How do they feed in? And and where? And in terms of where that benefit and cost is associated. So yeah. we're already unpacking what a complex uh, basket uh, of of yeah. questions and issues this is but um you know jim hopefully has some of the answers so we ought to uh, we ought to let him in i'm jim ski and i chair scotland's just transition commission and for most of my life i actually spent my time being co-chair of working group three of the intergovernmental panel on climate change uh, which loops after mitigation on my uh, very theoretical day job is as a professor of sustainable energy at imperial college Welcome, Jim. Welcome back, I should say. You were a guest almost a year ago to this day, COP26, our, our live session. So it's absolutely fantastic to have you back. And today we're hoping to get your insights around a just transition. Now, you're very unique in the sense that you you hold key positions on an international stage, but also from the sort of Scottish perspective, at the domestic stage. And you're very much at that, that forefront. So just casting our mind back to COP26, what went on there, what the key resolutions were. And we have COP27 in Egypt in, in a few weeks' time, which I'm assuming you'll, you'll be part of. I just wanted to get a sense of how important the issue of climate justice, but also folded into that energy justice, will be. And so what are the, the key issues or sticking points that are going to have to be taken forward from COP26 and ironed out or at least revisited it? COP27. Yeah, yeah. Uh, worthwhile saying, Matt, uh, I'm not a dedicated COP watcher, mm -hmm. although I have been to every COP since the one in one in Paris back, back in 2015. But it's amazing when you get there, how much you get lost in your own processes and conversations. But it's worthwhile saying that not every COP is equal. You know, some COPs are more landmarks than others. And Glasgow was a big one. That's quite clear. It was the biggest since the, since the Paris COP that came up with the Paris Agreement. So the Glasgow Pact that was agreed was a very significant milestone mm. on what will be happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, you know, at COP27 in two or three weeks' time. 
is going to be, I think, much more kind of incremental progress, uh, you, you know, as we move forward. So just to say, on the on the climate climate justice kind of issue, I mean, the big thing that will dominate conversations will be is the question of loss and damage for developing countries internationally. That's probably the biggest, you know, climate climate justice issue with a big international dimension. But it's worthwhile saying that. Just transition is a really hot topic at the moment. There is a formal process within the convention, uh, the so-called Katowice Committee of Experts on the Impacts of the Implementation of Response Measures, to give it its nice, short, catchy name for the process. Surely that has an acronym, Jim, surely. Or if it doesn't, please invent one. KCE, Katowice Committee of Experts, that's the one. Great, okay. But it's worth saying there's an awful lot happening offline in, in all this, you know, the sort of background discussions that go on COP. So the International Labour Organization, in collaboration with the European Commission Directorate General for Employment, actually has an entire pavilion devoted to just transition at COP27. Mm. So... The concept is really, really comes of age, but as it's come of age, it's kind of revealing that it could mean many different things in many different contexts. Local specificity really, really matters. And I think, Jim, it's just, it's worth reminding our, our listeners. We actually had Rene Van Diemen on the pod. It was before COP26, so it was a good, good year and a half ago to explain the, what the IPCC does. But just, just a word on what it does and and the importance of its forthcoming synthesis report, which, as I understand, is the culmination of this current round, basically. Yeah. So IPCC, as we describe it, is the UN body for assessing the science of climate change and, you know, and, and possible responses. So we report, produce reports on rough, roughly it's probably a seven-year cycle, realistically, in which there are, there are three working group reports on the physical science of climate change, impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, and the third report, mitigation, which is about reducing emissions or increasingly actually removing carbon dioxide from from the atmosphere as well. And, you, you know, like Lord of the Rings, one ring to bind them all, the synthesis report comes along to try and draw on all of these underlying working group reports to produce a single report that sums up the state of knowledge. And that is being worked at at the moment, and we expect it to be produced about the middle of March next year. Unfortunately, too late for COP27, which is unfortunate. thing about a synthesis report, it can't introduce new material. It can be only be based on material in the underlying working group reports. So the last synthesis report would have been, what, 2014? 2014. Wow. So these things don't come along very often. No, 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 they don't. And it's taken so long. It's a mixture of COVID and other ish, other delays in the synthesis report. We're probably about a year behind schedule from where it was originally intended to be. And I think you can kind of bring your IPCC hat on, uh, you know, on and off here. But how have you seen the concept of a just transition differ depending on the context? I mean, when you say those two words in a sort of Southeast Asian or a North American context versus a Western European, do you get a, a different, you know, discussion or, or, or a response? Well, 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 let's let's look at it more from the the the. You know, the perspective of different issues because just transition uh, you, you know it goes back to environmental justice in the US which has a longer longer history but a just transition was originally applied 
to the, the, the challenge of exiting from the coal industry, basically in a fair way. And that's why that you, you know, UNFCCC body is called the Katowice Committee of Experts, because it, it was at the Katowice COP that the Poles who were facing you know, the rundown of the coal industry in their area in Upper Silesia, you, you really pressed the concept at, you know, back in whichever, whichever year it was, I think it was 2017. So, so that, that's where it started. And I think lots of other people have, have uh, begun to realise the wider dimensions as well. So obviously, you know, in Scotland, the, you know, the extension to the oil and gas industry is relevant as well. And I think the other big area which we may get on to is the question of what happens in land use and, and fair transitions there, which is really an extremely difficult area because it collides with issues of land tenure, which very much according to you know, different national contexts. So I think land use and, and the energy supply are probably the big ones. But of course, in Scotland, we've also applied it to the demand side as well to cover issues like fuel poverty. You know, we're starting to get into the issues, you know, how do people on lower incomes afford an electric vehicle because they cost much more upfront. These kind of issues start to come in. So I'm really fascinated talking about just transition on the one hand and also talking about, you know, the, the broader climate issues that are brought up at, at COP and through the work that you've been doing over, you know, many, many years with the IPCC. And I, I think that when I look at what's happening in Scotland, I find it very exciting in a lot of ways that the Scottish government is bringing together their energy strategy and their just transition planning. And they're really aligning these two concepts. But do you, do you see that happening elsewhere? You know, do you see there being a challenge in the way that we're talking about these concepts? Are they, are they aligned enough or can they sometimes appear to be at odds with each other or at tension with each other? You know, so, so are we seeing sort of cross learnings? Like, are we taking learnings, for example, with what's happening um, and, and the work coming out of the IPCC and thinking about then, you know, how can we be delivering that in a way that enhances the just transition? Or, or are we learning insights that seem to kind of conflict with the ultimate underlying kind of goals of a just transition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, these are the kind of conversations that, that, that take place because some more on the environmental side will uh, say by just transition, they, they mean just get on with the transition and, and don't pay attention to the, the kind of the social aspects so, so much, which gets a lot of pushback, especially from the trade union movement, which is more, I, I, you know, focusing on the social and economic issues. In terms of lesson learning, I think we still have a long way to go. And it's just the fact that it's this COP that really the concept is really raised up in the agenda. There are so many side events and meetings that are just transition related. So at the International Labour Organization uh, Pavilion, which they have separately, they're having a whole set of sessions which tend to be knowledge hub sessions where just transition practitioners are setting out their, their wares, as it were, mm -hmm. to open up paths discussions with a wider range of people and I think a lot more of these conversations need to take place so we have a session you know a 30-minute session on the Scottish Just Transition Commission at the ILO pavilion you know where, where we will be discussing how we've moved on from phase one to phase two 
But worthwhile saying, I mean, the, the, the Scottish example is still getting a lot of attention internationally, because as far as I know, we're still the only, you, you know, sort of body politic anywhere in the world that actually has a just transition minister, mm. you know, for example, you know, which was a real innovation. And, that, and that's great to hear, and that really positions Scotland on the kind of international stage. I, I think it, it might just be worth pausing and just ref- reflecting for our, to, for our listeners some of the, the key kind of bodies that we're talking about. So I'd very much like to dig into the Just Transition Commission in the context of Scotland in a moment. But if we can just reflect on the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and, and what that role is in relation to COP27 and framing those those climate negotiations. But also, Jim, if you could maybe speak to the extent to which Just Transition and the concepts of climate justice are being dealt with by the IPCC as part of their synthesis work. Right. right. Oh, okay. So just just to say, for, for IPCC, in the current cycle, which started at 2015, just transition had yet to take take off as a concept. When, so when we scoped out the Working Group 3 report on mitigation, the word just, the phrase just transition doesn't appear anywhere in the, in the approved scope of the, the thing. However, when the synthesis report was scoped out, which is the one that's yet to be completed, it was scoped out at a later date. The idea of just transition was in there, and it's in the you know, the approved outline of the report. And the only way that you could get just transition to flow into the synthesis report was via the Working Group 3 report. So there is material in the Working Group 3 report in a couple of chapters that refers quite strongly to the concept of, of, of just transition. Mm. I have to say a lot of it is quite kind of theoretical and abstract at the, uh, uh, at the moment. And that may, may may pose challenges to our policymakers who are always looking for specificity in what they can do on a Monday morning at nine o'clock. Yeah. So some of the IPCC material may not help them to th- that extent. But it, but it, it, it is coming through. And just to say in terms of IPCC reports in general, mm. there's a lot of interest in the IPCC reports. This is the first COP since the Working Group 2 and Working Group 3 reports came out on impacts and mitigation. At the subsidiary bodies, without getting into too much of the the jargon of negotiations back in in, in June, we presented the reports in full, both Working Group 2 and Working Group 3. And there are little aspects of the reports being uh, communicated, you know, at at COP itself, but not as official side events, you you know, uh, uh, as it were. So it it is happening. Uh, And we have an IPCC pavilion and we are running a Just Transition event there, for example where we are getting actually Ben Sovico from Spru at Sussex uh, to give a presentation on what the report says about just transition. And then we're getting a set of wider commentaries on land use. We've got somebody from South Africa who will be talking about their just transition mm. experience uh, there. And we will also get, get commentaries from unions and uh, a body called the Institute for Human Rights and Business uh, as well. So these are the kind of people we'll get in there. We're talking about Jim's IPCC work at the international level. And then it's a very sort of domestic work at the Scottish level. And Becky, you've been working on this, but it's just how, how we re- resolve these two. What can we learn between them? Well, and also also just reflecting back on, on what you said at the start of the conversation, Jim, with some of the one of the biggest sort of climate justice issues being around, you know, finance mechanisms internationally around loss and damage. And that's that's a very international issue, which is quite different from some of the potentially more 
local, I mean, national issues and maybe local issues that Scotland's facing. So yeah, how do we bring all of that together? It, it feels very complex and, and, and challenging. You're, you're dead right on that. I, I really support the premise behind your question, as you would say in the Today programme. Uh, so, 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 I mean, the, the thing is with IPCC, I feel sometimes it's a bit head in the clouds, if you know what I mean. Mm. But Scottish Just Transition does keep your feet very firmly in the ground. And I love it because of the complementary nature of the activities. So when you're doing the IPCC stuff, when you're arguing about the placement of a comma with countries and all the rest of it, it rem- you know, the Just Transition Commission reminds you that it's about people and real th- real things on, on the ground. But equally, when you're doing the Scottish kind of activities, you're also reminded that things you do in one part of the world have implications somewhere else. And, and they're seen in a certain way. And so I find these activities to be very, very complementary. And, you know, you can make connections between them because, you know, IPCC comes the bit with big messages about decarbonising energy supply, electrification of demand, the, the increasing importance of nature-based solutions and land use change. You do the Just Transition Commission and you see what it is like to actually do these things on the ground and all the practicalities of, of, of making that happen do you worry that we could that we could end up in a situation where we're looking for example at at delivering that just transition and delivering a a a net zero transition in scotland where we end up taking action that will inadvertently create these challenges overseas i mean you know one of the one of the perhaps more obvious examples is when we talk about the electrification and the increased need for storage and then we look at where those minerals are resourced from like are we are we at risk of just repeating our past mistakes but with mm. different uh, resources yeah uh, of course there's an interesting question if you if you start looking for problems you will definitely find them so if you find that old energy is unacceptable and new New energy is unacceptable as well. Uh, you, you, you're really in quite a lot of trouble. But just to say, uh, you know, I was at a, a conference which had a much more international flavour last week, where the challenges of what you might call, I mean, mostly just transition has been about transitions out. For, for example, of fossil fuels. But the worry there that was being raised was the challenges of, of transitions in and you know, the question of extracting minerals, etc., in, in different parts of the world, with the worry that the companies who are extracting these minerals now mm. don't necessarily have the experience that fossil fuel companies have been building up over a period of decades in sort of working working with with local communities. So there are a huge set of challenges there that, you know, basically involve building, you know, good labor practices back along supply chains. And there's also a bigger issue for some of these countries that, you, you know, Taking minerals out of a country and then just sending the raw material out is not necessarily leaving a lot behind. So there are some big questions about there about whether the countries that are producing the minerals can actually diversify and move down the value chain. And instead of exporting cobalt, they're exporting batteries that they've assembled themselves, for example, mm. so that there's more of the skilled labour resides in the country. So I mean, you need to think. You need to think about these issues, but. Um, Frankly, unless we get on with new energy, the world will warm up. And if the world warms up, then there you will get some of the biggest climate injustice. Nobody says it's easy, but, you know, we need to, to deal with these challenges. 
from those challenges to the solutions because I, you know, you and you brought up a couple of really great examples around the the good labor practices along the supply chains and diversification. You know, how do we make sure that those are put in place? Is that something that needs to be discussed and raised and agreed on at, at COP at that international level, or is this something that's very much needs to be dealt with on a country by country basis? No, when you're looking at transnational impacts, you can't do it entirely on a on a country by country basis, which is why bodies like the International Labour Organization or the International Trade Union Congress are actually going to take a big interest in you know in these issues. It's worthwhile saying, I think, that in terms of new energy, you know, sort of electrification and renewable energy, the 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 capacity to control in a country like Scotland is much weaker than it would be for your conventional fossil energy. You know, we've got BPs and Shells and companies that are headquartered there. We don't necessarily have companies that are you know extracting these minerals, especially for example, you know, a lot of my you know China control, controls a lot of these supply chains. Uh, you, you know, at the moment, so it is a is I think a much more difficult issue where I think that actually there's less agency in a country like Scotland compared with the fossil fuel agenda. Jim, I'm just maybe wanted to bring things back now to a domestic level. I've I've been living in Scotland now for six years, and uh, the more discerning listeners will note your Scottish accent and and the fact that uh, you're a proud proud Dundonian. Our fellow host Fraser is not far from your neck of the woods. That is where you hail from, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, glad. I'm glad I got that right. Yeah, you could have made a mistake there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be very careful. The reason I say that is, you know, you're taking on this as a chair of the Just Transition Commission for Scotland, but also, you know, you are a Scot, you've grown up in Scotland, you know Scotland intimately. So just kind of reflecting on the challenges of Scotland's energy transition, I mean, we're looking, your piece bleeds right across, not just energy, but it's cross-cutting, it's economic, it's social, it's political. What what do you see is the the biggest challenges facing this just transition? And and I may note this isn't the first energy transition that Scotland has gone through in the last you know twenty twenty first century. But yeah, anyway, reflections on that, please. Yeah, yeah, okay. First of all, say talk about opportunity rather than challenge. But I think you know one of the most obvious things to get on with is improving the quality of the housing stock. You, you know, and it, basically in, in insulation, bringing the fabric of buildings up to scratch, and that you know is a win-win-win in terms of reducing emissions, reducing consumer costs, you know, build, building up uh, j- jobs, etc. In, in the new economy, there are challenges associated with it but it's not the big it's not the big it's the biggest opportunity but it's not necessarily the biggest challenge and i think the two challenges that jump out for me are exiting the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. and the the implications of that and 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 moving over and quite frankly with uh, you know the situation in rec- ukraine and what's happened with energy prices etc and the temptation to go out and explore for more o- oil and gas i think that is you know that there's a really quite fundamental political challenge there about where you go, coupled with the issue that uh, oil and gas licensing is for the, at the UK level, not the Scottish level. Mm-hmm. So there may be influence, but the, it doesn't have decisive power. And then the second big one, I think, is the op- what's opening up on, on land use and the more agriculture, the more nature-based solutions. 
And you, you, the, the, you know, the question, I mean, it really interacts with questions of land tenure in Scotland as well and the high concentration mm. of land, land ownership and the amount of tenant farming and crofting, you know, that's, uh, the, 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 that's going on. And basically, the, it really does pose some challenges to implementing, you know, the kind of techniques that you that you might want to put in place. You know, the Just Transition Commission has just spent two days on on Lewis and Harris talking about issues particular to the Western Isles, and the land use issues jumped out mm-hmm. in a big way. As you know, we're learning about the nature of crofting tenancies and the kind of restrictive covenants on them, and all, all these kind of issues. It is a real big challenge to deal with and I think you know in some ways you almost can't deal with the climate one until you've also picked up some of the land reform issues first yeah. to move things forward it is a great big challenge we've, we've covered some of this on previous pods no doubt maybe dig into this in a moment but on the kind of uh, we frame is green leads issue but the the natural capital voluntary carbon offsetting as we speak just yesterday i think the climate change committee released their their report on on this issue so very very live mm. may i add one more in jim if you don't mind and just to get your reflections on this i think Scottish government face not not a unique challenge, but certainly more unique than than some other countries. Where, as as a devolved administration, there are only so many devolved powers that they have. Land would be a devolved power, but much of the the energy supply chain sort of sits under sort of more reserved powers for Westminster to make those decisions. So, from a just transition commission perspective, how how challenging do you find this? That you're kind of you're having to operate within the scope of limited, although important, but limited powers. Well, well, I mean, I mean, I think as we delicately describe it, the current constitutional settlement to to, to try and keep keep everybody everybody happy on it. I mean, we have to recognise it, and you know, we will come and say the you the the, the Scottish government uh, could use all its persuasive powers, and that's kind of all all that we can say at the moment. I mean, we can't get in uh, involved in Indiref two discussions and all these kinds of issues. That's completely beyond us. But we can talk. We can emphasise. Where the Scottish government has agency and what they can do, yeah. and where they should be exercising persuasive powers to the extent possible to influence UK policy, yeah. and that's realistically what you can do. No, I mean, and that's an important point. But to, to the to the extent where Scotland may be able to take a steer on making policy decisions that support a just transition, but find that they they end up meeting a brick wall down the line because there are reserve powers. I mean, I, I just I just wonder to what extent, you know, just transition in the fullness of time actually may demand either additional powers or greater alignment between devolved uh, administrations and, and, and Westminster because Otherwise, you're you're pushing with one hand and potentially pulling with the other. You you do know that uh, co-chairs of IPCC are not supposed to comment on the policies of individual countries, and you're taking me into very tricky, tricky, okay. tricky territory there, Matt. But, which, but I could, you you know, I, I I can still do a response on it. I mean, obvi- very obviously, Scottish government can do so much, and we will point that out, you know, because there is always a temptation, if I can put it that way, for Scottish ministers to say, we've reached a brick wall, it's not our fault, and we'll blame all these guys down in London for it. So we need to pick out, you know, where Scottish government genuinely has agency, and it's quite a lot. You know, if you're looking at, you know, land and sea issues, Sure, the UK government basically, you know, controls the sea area through the Crown Estate. 
But the land and land tenure is up to Scotland. I mean, these are Scottish acts that can change it. We've had Scot, you know, land reform acts. It can be done, but there are some very tricky political issues to be negotiated mm-hmm. uh, within Scotland uh, around land reform. And the other very obvious point, for example, is that although energy supply policy is uh, you know, a reserve power for Westminster, the planning system is Scottish. And you can say no to a lot of things through the planning system, e.g. fracking, nuclear power, yeah. all of these kind of things. Yeah, and, and just to clarify, I'm not trying to, to, to squeeze a juicy tidbit around <laughs> independence here. I, I am I am more speaking to that the importance of that alignment between nations that we were talking about before, because in microcosm, we have UK as an umbrella government, you know, within which these devolved administrations sit, and and this is why I think these international fora are so important to to discuss, you know, what a way forward is for you know coalitions of nations. Yeah, yeah, but but very very. I can't think of of a, you know a single country with devolution or a kind of federal structure where there is not a tension between individual states and the federal thing, whether it's the US, Germany, wherever you want to go, that, that, that that's endemic. Well, uh, uh, maybe there's lessons that can be learned from Scotland and the UK on that basis, but uh, there I shall leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, without without getting back to like Scotland and the UK, I think this concept of alignment is really, really fascinating. And, you know, we started this conversation off by talking about the importance of, of local and um, locally specific or contextually specific solutions. Mm. And to me, that also really points to the the role not just of say local authorities and local governments so kind of even one level down I guess below what we've just been talking about but also in in a lot of ways the roles of of other organizations and you know one thing that I was really really struck by at COP26 last year was the you know was the way that cities large institutions players from industry really were were kind of getting involved. And I know that, you know, at the heart of it, the COPs have been around this, you know, international climate negotiations at that very kind of political national government level. But as we start to talk about the implementation of the solutions rather than necessarily kind of these, these agreements, to me, there seems to be something very important here around that alignment across across scales, whether you're talking about local government through to national and international, but also across kind of different players in the sector, whether it's industry, community organizations, finance institutions, and so on. And so, you know, as we shift away from thinking about like the the biggest challenges that we might have to start thinking about how do we deliver on some of those opportunities? I mean, do you see a shift in the the focus and the framing of the discussions there. I know you've been sort of moving from that that initial phase of work on the Just Transition Commission to a, a kind of more a secondary phase, more focused on the delivery rather than its defining and its framing. And do you see different sort of opportunities there around who can be engaged and how? Right. Just to say, um, I, I think the implementation side. I don't think I I, I would. Uh, Sorry, this is getting me to deep terror. I'd quite trust the negotiators to get into some of the detailed implementation because the people who go to negotiate at the COPs can actually be a little bit distant from the, you know, the kind of policymakers back home who are actually charged with delivering delivering stuff on the ground. Now, the character of characteristic of a COP, of course, there's a negotiating core and what happens in the the centre of the blue zone. 
uh, you know, as it were. But increasingly, the character of COPs, it's a mixture between an international negotiation, an international congress with all the civil society, and a trade fair where all the companies are getting together to, to discuss the, these issues. And you, know, in a way, the, you know, the value of the COPs is, you know, in terms of implementation is on the wider side for different actors from different communities to get together, you know, to exchange and share information. And the very specific example that's good is the example of of cities and urban policy makers, you know, where we've had an IPCC, you know, special event, we got together with the C40 people, you know, to have a, a, you know, an international workshop on cities. And actually, at COP27, there will be launched a so-called summary for urban policy makers of the IPCC reports, which we have to be careful. It's not been approved by government, so it's not an IPCC product, but it's a derivative product for, you know, that somebody else is producing based on the IPCC reports targeted at a very specific audience. And I think actually cities is a very good example of where you've seen a lot of action you know, actually happening that is beyond the negotiators to do this, you know, it's the fact. I mean, implementation needs to happen at a, a you know a national, regional, local level. But it is useful for people to get together to share experience and get a sense of what works and you know what can be taken forward. And in the work that you've been doing, I guess then both with the the IPCC and this framing around or this this kind of translation to think about what this might mean for the cities and taking that forward, but also the the kind of work you know going along alongside that with the just transition commission you know what have you what for you has been some of the key highlights or learnings around the opportunities now for delivering this just transition to net zero? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I have uh, the implementation end. I mean, you, you know, in IPCC, I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I do the Just Transition Commission, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm a, you're sort, of, sort of chairing a, a bunch of stakeholders. And it's a very, very different world. And I do think we, you know, we, we need to have uh, much more dialogue between these these you know different communities one of the things that we did that was a novelty you know for ipcc in this cycle is while we were producing reports we actually discussed drafts of reports systematically with the environmental NGOs through Climate Action Network International. We convene webinars with them to have an exchange of views between the scientists and the, the practitioners there. And we also had sessions with the, the so-called bingos, the business and industry NGOs as well. We have to be completely balanced. So we speak to the environmental movement and the, and the business side as well. And these were extraordinarily useful because, uh, you know, I think it – it really brought home, you know, to the scientists involved in IPCC that this actually has a practical outcome somewhere further down the line. But it also helped, I think, the the stakeholders to realise where these scientific messages were coming from. And we could take a little bit of a time to explain in more depth, you know, why emission pathways followed the path they did, why there are particular measures needed, the, the fact that carbon dioxide removal is actually essential 
if you if you're going to get to net zero, you can't do without it. Which, which uh, you, you know, there's there has been wishful thinking in the past to say renewables and efficiency can do everything, but it can't. So I mean, there's something interesting here, Jim, in what you're saying. So that you've got the Just Transition Commission, I guess, on a kind of land side, in, in terms of I guess a similar model, if you will, is the Scottish Land Commission, which does a is a separate body, but again, operates in in that sphere of objective advice, evidence based, bringing together a combination of scientists and practitioners. You, you, you don't agree? No, I, I, can, can I quarrel with you, you on that one? Please, the, please the, do, yeah. the, You know, the, the Just Transition Commission is a science analyst, analytically based body. It's not really. I mean, that's why I said I'm a scientist in IPCC, but, you know, it's, you know the Just Transition Commission is much a stakeholder, uh, you, you know, led body. So I would not say the Just Transition Commission, of course, we're, we're not going to go against al- analysis and evidence, but that's not the core of it. It's bringing different stakeholder views together. Okay. I, I, I don't disagree with that. My point is that there are, on both bodies, there are scientists who may not be wearing their scientist hat on, but they are dealing from a research base, dealing with evidence, and that's that's brought to bear in a set of recommendations. Which I think, if you look at the two two reports, so the Just Transition Commission is is offering a set of guidelines, recommendations, insights into how to deliver a just transition. Now, mm. Becky's question there is about okay, how do we do a just transition? Mm. How do we take these ideas? recommendations and deliver them. Now, I know Scottish government very busy in this space. It's bringing together its energy strategy and just transition plan associated with that with the climate change plan. What's the bridge between the two there? How the work that you're doing through the Just Transition Commission and colleagues, how does that filter into actual policy and, and, and on-the-ground change? Or how do you hope it will will inform that? Right, right. Okay, well, the very fact that we have just transition plans at all is a result of the uh, Just Transition Commission recommending them. So, you, you know, it has, it has actually brought something about. And our other recommendations were around engagement and consultation, you know, which is going on at the moment, and a lot of attention to the, the economic implication, who pays, who benefits, etc., cetera, mm. from, from the kinds of changes. Now, when the new Just Transition Commission, which because the second phase is quite different from the first phase, was set up, we have a duty to advise the minister and the Scottish government, and we have a, have a duty to scrutinise it. So we will be feeding an advice on the structure of these just transition plans you up front. Yeah. But then we will also have a duty to scrutinise the implementation of these plans and call attention to the fact whether they're working, whether targets are being met, etc. So another thing that we're working on is monitoring and evaluation. You're trying to think about indicators. You know, what 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 means success? You, you know, when you've actually done a just transition. Now we be, need to be a bit consultative about this because the, the Scottish government, I think, has run one workshop on that, and I think there's another one next week. Uh, you, you know, c- coming up as well, which which we we will be attending. So monitoring and evaluation. It sounds really boring and no, no. Well, you can see Becky and I. We're like, oh, <laughs> metrics and indicators. Yes, please. Mechanistic, but it's critical. It's critical. It's critical. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. I was actually, I was at that first workshop and it was very interesting. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I mean, I, I think what Scotland's doing in some ways is it is seeming it is quite groundbreaking. It is very, it is different. But you, you said that there's a lot more focus on just transition at COP this year. I'm just, just tell me about what, why do you think it's becoming more of a hot topic? What is it that's that's really making people sit up and take notice about that? 
Well, I, I think it, I think it's the fact that until kind of you got to the Paris agreements and the ambition of the targets, there was not a realization that in order to meet science-based targets, you needed to do things that were no longer incremental, as it were. You, you, you know, uh, you know, m- mitigation policy is not like you know spreading the butter on top of your toast. Uh, you, you know, as it were, it's a fundamental change, and it carries big social and economic consequences. And I think people are just kind of wake it, waking up to that. Uh, this is why just transitions come forward. There is a risk because in some jurisdictions that have been struggling with climate policy, they tend to say, ah, just transition. That's the answer. And it's a kind of magic dust that mm. you, you sprinkle on difficult climate policies to make it okay. It is not easy. And you know, that's the point of bringing it forward. Do you think that its profile has been raised in part because of some of the, you know, like the climate march that we saw in um, at COP26, the, 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 the rise in kind of youth voices. Do you think that's been playing a role in this? I mean, when we look at kind of the climate science and the work of the IPCC, that's, as you said, you're, you're a scientist in that. It's grounded in the science. The just transition um, kind of movement, if, <laughs> if I want to call it that, seems to be coming from a very different place. Yeah, yeah, and 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 just say, I'm not sure. Just transition is is coming from from the March bits. I mean, most of the March bits are about broader climate justice and the impact impacts of climate change internationally. But around 2018, it was like all the planets aligned around climate policy because you 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 know you you had uh, Greta Thunberg in the marches, you had the IPCC 1.5 report, mm. you saw corporate action beginning to spring up, and really everything aligned at the same time there to take it forward. And I wouldn't say that, you know, one factor was decisive. It was the combination of them, I think, that drove it forward. It was science and a bigger public movement. Now, Jim, I think we're fast running out of time and I just wanted to end on this question just to reflect on your work with the Just Transition Commission and the focus on Scotland. When all is said and done, I don't know how how long this will go on for. It sounds like, given the fact that you'll be monitoring and evaluating this, this could rumble on and 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 Godspeed. But um, what do you hope will be the, the legacy of the Just Transition Commission? And crucially, looking to other countries, I think you said this is globally the only organisational entity that is is driving uh, a just transition, you know, from a kind of uh, analytical standpoint and providing these recommendations. What can the world learn from what you're doing through the Just Transition Commission? Well, well I, I, I think they will want want to look at, I mean, first of all, the world appears to be quite impressed that, with the first commission and what it came up with. And, you know, it came up with really quite clear recommendations, all of which the Scottish government picked up. And the fact that there's a minister there and it's kind of built into the governance system is, actu- is actually quite an important symbol. But I think what the world should be looking out for is the implementation phase. Which, which is which is obviously coming up and will run through this the Scottish Parliament. And just to say, we are a bit different from the Land Commission because that's a statutory body that, that's established under under an act an act of the, the the Scottish Parliament. That is different from the Just Transition Commission, which is not statutory. We are appointed by the government of the day, and the government of the day appointed the first commission for two years, and this commission is appointed for the length of this Scottish Parliament. (laughs) 
you, you know, so we, it will effectively review the effectiveness of these institutional arrangements. But, you, you know, I mean, by the, if we get to sort of 2024, 2025, without speculating about the, the timing of the next election, which w- would define the length of the current Just Transition Commission, you, you know, I, I, I think you'd look back and say, does this, has this arrangement, has it held the Scottish government's feet to the fire in terms of delivering the implementation of, of just transition principles and uh, uh, and measures. And that's the thing we should be measured on, which is why the monitoring and evaluation framework is critical. Well, Jim, as a colleague and also as a resident of Scotland, uh, I wish you all the best with this because it's a very important topic. But I, I just want to say a big thank you for your time today. We've really appreciated that and uh, really enjoyed the chat. And if, if we do that again, Matt, I hope you'll p- have picked up a Glasgow accent instead of that Yorkshire one. You, you uh, don't I, get I'll, I'm leaving that to my two Ouija's, So All right. OK. <laughs> So you've been listening to Local Zero. Thanks again to Professor Jimsky for taking part in this episode and for schooling us all on just transitions, whether they are in our local neighbourhood or whether they're happening globally. Becky, tour de force as ever, really enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Honestly, the conversation was so so broad and so diverse. I feel like I've, I've learned a lot and I'm just going to have to sit down for about two weeks and process all of that, which is I've got just about enough time to do before COP kicks in. <laughs> Absolutely. And before we have a load of other issues to deal with. So I think all that it leaves us to say is please, please, please connect with us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod. We've had some really, really nice responses uh, of late. Charles Wood from Energy UK, really kind response saying anyone not listening to at Local Zero Pod yet should really fix that important topics presented in an interesting and fun way. The podcast Sweet Spot. The first time I think I've ever been described as a sweet spot, Becky, but I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that too. Absolutely brilliant thanks Charles fantastic stuff thank you Charles so please do connect with us in the meantime thank you for listening look forward to seeing you again soon produced by Bespoken Media